Last year was hard for all sorts of reasons, but one of the things that I missed the most was hanging out with other people. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my family and I really enjoyed the extra time that we got to hang out together during lockdown. I loved the mandatory lunchtime board games, the nightly dishes dance parties and the adventure of how many different ways we could build an indoor cubby house. But I did really miss the fellowship of others and the opportunity to have friends over and not just chat on Zoom. And I wasn't the only one. My kids were going stir-crazy as well, suffering from friend withdrawals. So as soon as restrictions eased in the middle of last year, my family made a date to go and visit some really close friends. Well, really close friends that live a really long way away, more than 800 kilometres, which is why we had to wait for Anastasia Palaget to give us the green light. We marked the date on our calendar and the countdown was on. I was particularly excited because for me, it presented an opportunity to hang out with my best friend. We'd been friends for over 27 years. She was my youth leader and saw me through all the dramas and stress of high school and knows more stories about me than I care to remember. We've been there to support and encourage each other in our marriages, in our parenting and in our faith. The New Testament has a word to describe the kind of friendship that my friend and I have, and that Greek word is koinonia. But as often the case with Greek, it conveys so much more than our English words do. Koinonia means friendship and fellowship, but it means more than that. It describes an intimate connection that occurs first as we're connected to Jesus, and then because of our bond with Jesus, the connection we share with other people who also experience that bond with Jesus. Not only does this perfectly describe the relationship that I have with my friend, but it also describes the relationship that Jesus shared with his disciples. I mean, they were literally connected to Jesus and it was an intimate relationship. And Jesus also knew what it was like to really look forward to hanging out with them. In Luke 22, 14 to 15, we're told, When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table with his apostles, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. Eagerly desired, another translation says, with fervent desire. Jesus knew what was ahead, but before he got there, he deeply longed for that last chance to share koinonia with his best friends. But this wasn't a night where they just put on a movie and chilled. Jesus took this last opportunity to gather those closest to him and share some amazing teaching before he headed home. Each one of the Gospels gives us a glimpse into the night that Jesus spent with his disciples before he was crucified. But John's account is over four chapters long and he gives us a fairly lengthy report of what has come to be referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. You'll find the passage in John chapters 13 to 17. Today our focus will be on chapters 13 and 14 and the first chapter, first part of chapter 15. I'm going to be highlighting parts of the passage that really stood out to me as I studied it, which means that there may be parts of the passage that I skim or skip. But Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is alive and active. So this means that God might like to highlight something different for you throughout this portion of scripture. 
So can I just encourage you as we lead up to Easter to take some time to read through the chapters 13 to 17 of John's Gospel and ask God to make this scripture come alive for you and activate something in your heart. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because they record many of the same stories of Jesus' life in a similar order and sometimes even using identical wording. Whereas the Gospel according to John was written a number of years after the other Gospels and so his account is actually quite different. It includes some things that the others leave out and then it omits parts that are in all the other Gospels. For example, John doesn't include the breaking of the bread and distribution of the wine in his telling of the Last Supper. Scholars generally agree that this is because when John was written, the account of the Last Supper was already fairly well known, so John paints for us a different picture. The first thing you cannot miss in his telling of the story is the love that Jesus had for these guys who'd followed him around for three years, and love is the theme that permeates the entire discourse. Although the word love is only used six times in chapters 1 to 12 of John's Gospel, it's used 31 times in chapters 13 to 17. And we'll find the first reference in verse 1, reading from John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Now this text doesn't necessarily mean that he loved his own until the end of his life or even to the end of theirs, because we're told repeatedly in scripture that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It doesn't have an end. So it's important to understand that in the Greek, the phrase to the end means that he loved them to the uttermost or perfectly or completely. This describes a love that Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians goes beyond our human understanding. A love that is limitless, boundless and endless. And this love isn't just available to those who were present in the upper room that day, but rather a love that is available to you and to me as one of his own. Let's read on in verse 2. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God, and so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began washing his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I just love the picture that we get here. Jesus knew who he was, where he came from, and what he was sent to do. Having his feet planted firmly in the security of that, he just goes about the business of serving. I wonder if the same could be said for you and I. Do we have a firm grasp on our identity in Christ? Do we know to the depths of our heart the truth of who God says we are? That we're children, his children, chosen, adopted into his family. We're his masterpiece, fearfully and wonderfully made. We're part of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
We are one of God's own people. Standing firmly on those promises of who we are in Christ positions us perfectly to serve him and serve him with humility. Because when Jesus starts to serve, he starts right at the bottom with washing grimy, dirty feet. Now in our day, we've gotten pretty apt at hand washing, but foot washing, not so much. Due to the climate of the country surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, it was quite common for people in Jesus' day to wear sandals or go barefoot while doing their daily activities. So you can imagine how dirty feet would get after waltzing around Jerusalem for the day. It was customary that when you entered someone's house, their servant would wash your feet as a greeting and as an expression of hospitality. But on this occasion, there was no servant to perform this menial task. And while the disciples were frequently called on to carry out various tasks for their master, the washing of feet and untying of sandals weren't usually part of the package. Some New Testament commentaries suggest that the disagreement that broke out in the upper room over which of the disciples was the greatest was in fact them bickering over who had to perform the lowly task of feet washing. Jesus brings their hasty halt to their argument and in Luke 22, 26 and 27 we read his words. Instead the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who leads like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as one who serves. And then bringing his words to life, practicing what he had just preached, he pours water into the basin, washes his disciples' feet, and dries them with a towel that he has wrapped around himself. This is one of the events that's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. John is the only one that includes this transcendent act in his account of the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And I'm so glad that he came behind the others and put in the bits that they left out because I think that this beautiful act is important for three main reasons. Firstly, it demonstrates the humility of Christ. After interrupting their little squabble over who was the greatest, Jesus sank to his knees and in front of each one of them performs a task that in essence says, this is what being the greatest looks like. Long before servant leadership became a management style for businesses, it was a way of life for Jesus. He taught it with his actions and he taught it with his words. In Mark 9, Verses 35, he says, if anyone wants to be the first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. And Luke 14, 11, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was humility personified. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8 tells us that Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking up the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet was also symbolic in other ways. 
Let's just pick up from verses 6 to 8. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. As well as serving his disciples in a practical way, Jesus washed their feet that he might signify to them the value of spiritual washing and the cleansing of the soul from the pollutions of sin. This simple act demonstrated that unless they be cleansed of their sin, they could not inherit the kingdom of God. I believe it was also significant as it exemplified a number of promises from the Old Testament. Psalm 51.2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Ezekiel 36.25 tells us that then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And finally, this symbolic act of humility displays a deep affection for his disciples. In this tender and intimate act, Jesus demonstrates once again just how much he loves them. It was only last year when I studied this passage did I realise that Judas was still in the room at the time when Jesus was washing feet, which means in all likeliness Jesus knelt in front of the man who was going to betray him and washed his feet. So although Satan had already infiltrated Judas's heart and broken the intimacy in his relationship with Jesus, Jesus served him. I struggle to wrap my brain around that because sometimes I find it hard enough to serve my family whom I love dearly, let alone those people who have let me down or betrayed me. But that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus displayed and the kind of love he calls us to. Reading from verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Some have taken this verse literally as an instruction to wash each other's feet on a regular basis. However, I believe what Jesus is actually instructing is to serve each other with humble hearts, just as he served. He knew that his disciples were going to be the founders of the early church and be in positions of leadership. He knew that just like any of us, they could easily succumb to their pride and ego, so he reminds them, and us, to serve with humility. He echoes this call to follow his example in verse 3. 34 and 35 when he says a new command I give to you love one another as I've loved you so you must love one another by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another Jesus calls us not only to serve humbly but to follow his example and love one another as he has loved And he doesn't say a new suggestion I give to you. He says a new command. The Greek word here for command is entole, which means an ordinance, injunction, command or law. Jesus comes to fulfill the law of Moses and gives a new law, the law 
of love. And when he uses the word love, he doesn't use philia, the term for brotherly love. He uses the word agape, unconditional love, a no matter what kind of love. Jesus gives his disciples a new law, instructing them to love each other conditionally. And by his disciples, he means his followers. That's us. And when he says love each other, he doesn't just mean other disciples. He means everyone. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39, Jesus declared, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. In Matthew 5, 43, we read, You've heard that, that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will it get you? Are not even the tax collectors or sinners doing that? Walking in the kind of love that Jesus commands is loving your enemies, your neighbour, yourself and anyone you come across who needs your love. This means loving people who don't look like us and who don't vote like us. This means loving people whose moral compass might swing in a different direction. After all, they are the kind of people that Jesus hung out with. They are the people that Jesus loved. And his love doesn't come with strings, nor did it come with condemnation. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, love each other. He says, if you do it right, it will set you apart. You'll stand out like a beacon on a hill. If you love each other in the way that I have loved you, then it won't just show people love, it will leave them directly to me. Do we love like that? Do we love in a way that draws people's attention and points them towards the one who is love? That kind of love is a supernatural love, something that we can't manage in our own strength. But that's okay because Jesus promises us a supernatural gift, which we're going to get to shortly. So Jesus demonstrates his love for his disciples, and it's not a surface level love, but a deep love that moves past their flaws and failings. He knows their hearts. I'd even go as far to say that he knows them better than they know themselves. He knows Judas's heart has already been infiltrated by the enemy and that he's going to be the one to betray him. He knows that Philip and most likely a number of the other disciples still don't really know him or what he's on about. He knows Peter's fearfulness and fickleness and he knows that he will deny him. After claiming that he would lay down his life for Jesus, Jesus responds to Peter in verse 38. He says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, despite Peter's fickleness, or maybe because of it, I think Peter would have to be one of my favourite disciples. Personally, I feel a real affinity with Peter. I think that's mostly because Peter and I both suffer from the same disease of foot in mouth. He was tenacious and enthusiastic, but also impulsive and brash at times. It was Peter who jumped out of the boat to walk on the water towards Jesus and then promptly took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. It was Peter 
who suggested creating three tabernacles for Moses, Elijah and Jesus after witnessing their transfiguration on the top of Mount Tabor. It was Peter who earlier in the evening when Jesus went to wash his feet back-chatted Jesus and says, no way, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. But when Jesus explains it's necessary in order for him to be connected to Jesus, Peter does a complete 180 and says, well, if that's the case, then you can wash my whole body. And now we see Peter vehemently declare that he would lay down his life for Jesus. When Matthew recounts the story in his gospel, he quotes Peter as saying, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But Jesus, knowing his heart, says before the chickens are awake tomorrow morning, you are going to deny me three times. Now, I just want to skip forward in John for a second so we don't leave poor old Pete hanging out to dry. This guy was one of Jesus' closest friends. And yet when Jesus is standing there on the brink of death, Peter not only doesn't stand with him, but does exactly what Jesus says he's going to do. And in chapter 18, he denies even knowing him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And on the third time, he even throws in a few colourful words that aren't, well, they're not particularly Christian. But I don't think it's any accident that in John 21, we see Jesus after his resurrection ask Peter three times if he loved him. Three times he denies him and Jesus reinstates him by having him declare his love three times. And not only does Jesus reinstate him, but he says, Pete, even though you messed up, I'm not kicking you off the team. In fact, I'm actually naming you as team captain. You are going to be the rock on which I build the entire New Testament church. What an awesome story of redemption. What a brilliant illustration of the fact that God uses broken, unqualified and unlikely people to achieve his kingdom purpose. And Peter joins a host of others that we're told about in scripture. Think about the prostitute Rahab who God uses to hide two Israelite spies and plays an active role in saving a whole nation. And then there's David who went from shepherd boy to king from adulterer and murderer to being called a man after God's own heart. And what about Paul going from Christian killer to Christian leader and author of almost half the New Testament? It doesn't get much more unlikely than that. The world says if you have mistake chapters in your biography, then you have disqualified yourself. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Let's just join Jesus again at the table of the Last Supper, reading from the start of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Sometimes passages like this can cause us to conjure up some weird images in our mind. 
We might imagine Jesus going back to heaven and getting the angels together to do a little bit of celestial DIY as he prepares a place for us. But once again, if we refer to the Greek, the word that the NIV renders as rooms is mone, and it actually means dwelling or an abiding. This word mone only appears twice in the New Testament and both times are in this chapter. The other occurrence is in verse 23 when Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home, or our monet, with them. So in the context of this verse, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming and taking up residence in our hearts. Mark Rater, who is the Director of the Centre for Biblical Preaching in Melbourne, suggests that this passage speaks not to the future but rather the present. He states that Jesus' original hearers would have understood his father's house to be a reference to the temple. The temple was the dwelling place of God and soon its doors would be thrown open for all to enter through the sacrifice of his son. Jesus would then come by his spirit and he and the father would make their home or abide with all his people. Now, this shouldn't distract, detract or distract from visions of the glory of heaven because it is sure to be glorious. But I do wonder if this passage is a reference to our heavenly home or is it a rich expression of the home we have open to us right now, living and abiding with the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Let's dive back into the text and see what Jesus has to say about the promise of the Spirit reading from chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I'm just going to read that verse 20 again. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. From verse 26 we read, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In verse 16 Jesus promises another Advocate, Other translations use the word helper, comforter or counsellor. The word that Jesus uses when he says another means another that is just like the first. So Jesus is saying that the one who would come is just like him. I wonder if you've ever played that game when you get to have an imaginary dinner party and you can invite any five people. They can be dead or alive, real or made up. You know, every time I play that game, I always list Jesus as one of the people I want around my dinner table. Can you imagine that for a second, reclining at the table with good food 
and good wine, a little like this dinner party we're reading about in the passage. Jesus sharing his amazing wisdom, counselling you on the personal tough stuff that you're facing and reassuring you with his peace. Yet the fact remains that we have his spirit, the spirit of the triune God living in us. How amazing is that? That the God of the universe resides and dwells in each one of us who have accepted him as our Lord and Saviour. Later in the discourse in John 16:7, Jesus infers that the disciples will actually be better off having the Holy Spirit in his place. He says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So we don't need to imagine what it would be like to sit with Jesus because we have his Spirit living and dwelling in us. Now, I'm not sure about your church background, but I was raised in a church where we didn't really talk much about the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong, we still totally included him in the Trinity, and there was, of course, the quilted dove hanging on the back wall of the church. But there wasn't talk of the power that the Holy Spirit brings or how to experience the Holy Spirit on our walk with God. But then Dan and I moved to Papua New Guinea. Traditionally, the spirit world is very much a part of Melanesian culture, and I'm sure that many of you are aware by the different reports that have been over the news over the last few years that witchcraft and the presence of evil spirits is still very much prevalent in PNG today. And because the spirit world is a part of their traditional culture, most Papua New Guinean Christians are very open to the work of the Holy Spirit. They know that they need the Holy Spirit and are expectant of him. I don't think there is the same kind of expectancy in our culture and in our churches, but I definitely think there is a need. Francis Chan in his book, The Forgotten God, makes the comment that something is missing from the church today. He says the missing something is actually a missing someone, namely the Holy Spirit. Without him, people operate in their own strength and only accomplish human-sized results. The world is not moved by love or actions that are of, of human creation and the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different and the world cannot help but notice. I wonder if we need to open ourselves up to the possibility that the Holy Spirit wants to reveal himself to us in a new way. I strongly believe that our approach to the Holy Spirit always needs to be firmly grounded in biblical truth, but I also think that sometimes we be, could be missing out on the relationship, gifts, and the power that the Holy Spirit makes available to us because we're held back by fear. But Paul tells Timothy very clearly in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love and of a sound mind. And Jesus himself in the verse that we just read says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Because the truth of the matter is that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to manifest in our lives if we're going to surrender our weaknesses 
and claim his strength. We need the Holy Spirit if we're going to position ourselves to serve and serve with humility. And we need the Holy Spirit if we're going to love unconditionally and love in a supernatural way that shines as his light for the world to see. And not only does the Holy Spirit give us the power to love like that, but he also gives us the capacity to be filled with joy in a world full of pain, to have peace in the midst of chaos, patience in an instant society. He gives us the ability to demonstrate kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and a level of self-control. Well, the answer is given to us in the beginning of chapter 15, which is the last part of the discourse that we're going to look at today. Reading at John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You know, my husband's grandparents used to live in a red brick bungalow perched on top of a hill overlooking Harvey Bay. This place was full of rich memories for Dan and his family, so before the house was sold, he went and took some cuttings from their garden to plant in our garden of our very first house. One of the cuttings was a frangipani tree. At the end of 2019, we travelled down south for Christmas and happened to drive past our first house, and I couldn't help but notice the beautiful, blooming frangipani tree in the front garden. So with the resident's permission, I took some cuttings from this tree to plant in our far north Queensland garden. Now I have to be honest and say that I'm not really much of a gardener at all. So to be on the safe side, I took three cuttings in order to hopefully end up with one healthy tree. I followed my wonderful neighbour's instructions and removed their excess leaves, wiped them clean from sap and wrapped them up safely to make the 1500 kilometre journey home. When I got home, I stood them up in a reasonably shady spot for about three weeks. When my neighbour declared them ready, I got some large pots and prepared them with some gravel and potting mix. I planted my cuttings into the dirt and then I gently moulded the soil around them. A few weeks later, when I went out to check out and water my cuttings, I was delighted to find that one had grown a nice little healthy green leaf showing wonderful promise of something more to come. I thought to myself, what a clever little cutting to be able to produce life like that again. But then it occurred to me that the cutting hadn't really done anything. It hadn't chosen to be removed. It hadn't positioned itself to dry in the shade or put itself in a pot. It had just yielded to the hands of its gardener. And that is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in this passage. Let's just continue from verses 5 to 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In this beautiful picture that Jesus paints of the vineyard, he refers to us, his disciples, as branches. Our job as branches on his vine is to remain in him, holding on to him so that we can do what he's created us to do, which is bear fruit. If you take a close look at this passage, you will notice that all the other work that is done in the vineyard is carried out by the gardener. That's God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Not you, not me, not my neighbour. So if that's his job, what is ours? To remain, abide, connect, hold on to, and press into our Lord above all else. We don't have to pressure ourselves to serve and love others in our own strength. We don't have to present ourselves as perfect before we're worthy to be part of the vine. All we have to do is to remain in God, abide with the Holy Spirit and cling to Jesus. If we can do that, if we can yield to our gardener and cling to him as our vine, then our lives will bear fruit, just like my little frangipani cuttings.